0: I'm going to invite Nathan to come up, and as he comes up, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, Would you join with me in prayer? Jesus, we want to thank you for the wonderful truth of your word. We thank you that uh, it is relevant even to the church in Philippi, but also even relevant to us this morning. Pray that through your spirit you make these words come alive. Pray for your servant Nathan as he proclaims his truth. Empower him through your spirit. We pray that for our own hearts that we would listen, and also by your strength and by your power apply these truths your glory in Jesus name amen amen thank you Shabu if you're a a visitor here with us today we're going through a series in the book of uh, Philippians and it's just been an absolute joy and a challenge as uh, I've spent time preparing in this uh, book now as a church and, and you're most welcome to join us in this there's a little bookmark up the front here now we're putting out a challenge We'd love you to read through the book of the Philippians 20 times in one sitting. No, that's one time, 20 times, not 20 times at uh, once. But we'd love you to do that. We'd love you to try and write the book out. It's just an incredible blessing when you do so. So if you're a visitor, there's some bookmarks up the front here. Grab them, uh, take them with you as part of our challenge to you today. Uh, secondly, if you're not involved in a small group and would like to track along with us as we study through uh, this book together, we've got a a special group meeting here on a Wednesday evening at 7.30, so feel free to come along, we have some study guides and study books and we'd just just love to see you, and um, as we get shaped together by God's word uh, for his glory. This morning I'm going to ask you a question. And uh, it will be my attempt throughout the sermon to answer this question. And I think it's a, a very important question because this is the question the text asks of us as we read it together today. And the question is, is why is Jesus becoming a man so important for our growth in our faith? So, why is Jesus. He became a man why is that particular truth so important for us in our growth of faith and why does this truth you know jesus becoming a man how does that unify us how does that unify us individually to one another how is it part of our growth in Christ? You see, Jesus becoming a man is a a well-established New Testament truth. You know, theologians call this the incarnation. And we'll use that term a little bit this morning. The incarnation of Christ. So whenever I use that, that's purely Jesus leaving heaven, residing on here on earth for a particular point in time. You see, we first get introduced to this idea in Matthew And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. A more theological view of Jesus coming to this earth and becoming man is is found in uh, the Gospel of John. So just turn with me to to John chapter 1. It's just incredible as you, you look through how John, in this prologue, defines Jesus coming to earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him, not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the, the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Move down to verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone has, was coming into the world... He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is the key verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now as we come this morning to this beautiful letter to the Philippians, we'll see central to the text we're going to be studying today is the Incarnation of Christ Christ's example in going to the cross provides an example for us as followers of Christ thinking deeply about Christ's example and action should permeate all our actions within this body, within the community in which we serve, within our evangelism, within our growth. Christ should be preeminent in our thinking to develop our actions. It should develop our humility, and this humility should be evident to all. Our humility should be selfless and sacrificial. And these are tough things to consider. But be encouraged, because the Spirit of God dwells within us to conform, to refine, to shape us, to think as Christ thought. Turn with me please to Philippians, and we'll read the the text this morning. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, in this letter, as we've been discussing previously, Paul has highlighted his theology of life, which is to live as Christ, to die is gain. He is concerned about passing on to these wonderful, beautiful believers to continue in the power of the gospel, to defend the gospel, to advance the gospel, to contend for the gospel. He proclaims in himself, it doesn't matter what my circumstances are, whether I'm tied to a Roman guard or whether I'm beating the streets of the ancient cities of Rome. No matter what my circumstances are, I'm going to follow Christ. And in this uh, reading that we've read this morning, is part of a larger section. It really starts at one twenty-seven, and we started that last week. And the key thing in in this section is our growth in Christ. He now stops focusing on his circumstances, Paul does, and he starts exhorting the Philippians to say, hey, for you to grow in Christ, you must act like a citizen of heaven. You must stand firm. You must strive side by side with one spirit and one mind for the faith of the gospel. However, dear Philippians, there there will be challenges in that. Great challenges as you stand firm and strive. The challenges will come in the form of suffering. And you know what? Take courage in your suffering because that very suffering has been granted to you by God. If it's been granted to you by God, he's going to increase your belief. He's going to increase your faith. He will refine you in that process. So grow in your boldness and your suffering. Grow in that boldness as, as you have many opponents. In their situation, it was opponents from the Roman colony saying you must follow the emperor or you must do such and such to earn a living. Because you will grow in belief. You will grow in boldness as you stand against opposition. And this is part of your growth in Christ. And folks, the same is for you and I today. That exhortation to the Philippians is the same for you and I. If I were to a straw poll here today and say, who's suffering? Most of us would put our hands up in some area and some place in our life we are suffering. Realize God has granted you that for your belief. God's granted you that so you can turn and focus on Christ. See, for Paul, the confirmation of the gospel in the life of the Philippian believers was they're living out the gospel, no matter what the circumstance. See, to grow in Christ requires a discipline and godly intent. It's kind of wonderful. Um, after our men's camp uh, this year, we, we've set up a, a little group of men who are going through a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. You see, a Christian life is not about. Letting go and letting God. That's an element of it. We've got to depend upon God through His spirit to empower us. But there is a responsibility to be disciplined in growing in our faith. In this men's group, we're working through some really tough stuff, like, how should we treat our wives? Um, how should we treat our children? But mostly, how should we treat our wives? And um, this is really, really kind of edgy for us, and I think we all want to rip out the chapter in our book. Um, but the reality is, you need to be disciplined. You need to, you need to put on the mind of Christ, as we all discuss in this particular portion. So not a let go and let God. It's a, it's a let go and let God with the Spirit working within you, but putting your best step forward to grow in godliness. And this is the heart that Paul is, 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 is exhorting these Philippians to because he gives them this command. That your manner of life be as heavenly citizens. See, we're called in this portion of Scripture to put our minds into gear so that our actions will be consistent with who we believe. And this is always done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it a wonderful thing that when you put your faith in Christ that the Spirit dwells within you? to sharpen you to shape you to refine you to conform you into the image of his son you see we read at the start of chapter 2 last week the, the importance of the mind the mind is there You read um, verse 2 complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility can count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look at not only your own interests, but also the interests of others. See, the unity of mind, for me, is about having the right attitude. It's about having a singleness of purpose. It's about having a mental concentration. And this call is used consistently throughout the letter as you're reading it. I asked you last week to read it and say, how many times did you see think, count, consider? Did it surprise you as you did that? I hope it did. Because it's reinforcing the truth and, and Jennifer said one of the major things of, of her mission is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is what Paul is, is instructing these believers to be. Start with the mind. Start with right thinking. Right thinking equals right behavior. And boy, that's a message we need to learn today. Because our world is so concerned about self and so concerned about experience that experience dictates right thinking. So when the mind is engaged and concentrating on things of Christ, then as brothers and sisters in Christ the fruit will be our unity. The fruit of righteousness will be seen in love. The the fruit of righteousness will be seen in humility. It will be seen in selflessness. And see now, Paul once again just turns as we have read and he starts this next section by saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. He uses the thinking process as a command here. It's not uh, if you feel like it. It's not uh, only if it's one of the last options that you need to uh, take hold of here. He says, have this mind among yourselves. It's the third time in a very short space he's used the term, but here he's actually saying it is a command. For your growth in Christ you need to think about Christ. If you want to grow in your Christian life, Paul is saying here to these Philippians, if you want to grow, if you want to be strong, if you want to be unified, think about Christ. And as you think about Christ, it will flow into action. You see, a literal translation of this verse would probably be better. It sounds very wooden, but this would be the way it would sound. Think about among you, that which you also think in Christ Jesus. You see, at the heart of thinking about Christ is our union with Christ. And I think that's what he's driving through with this. The ESV does it well in this translation because it says, Yours in Christ Jesus. Some of the other translations use the word attitude. The same attitude, NASB, NET, NIV, use that type thing. But the more literal, probably wooden translation, is it's more about your union with Christ. The results of you putting your faith and trust in Christ. That is the importance of the thought. So he's not really holding, because what what goes on from here, verse 6, 7, and 8, is a hymn. It's an old hymn of praise. So what we know is the, the Christ hymn. And um, why is it that? Because the r- literary style changes in the letter and it becomes a series of parallel lines. But I think when Paul writes, think among you that which also think in Christ Jesus, he's not understanding the hymn in an ethical way even though the suffering for Christ for the sake of Christ is part of our sanctification I think his primary focus is here is that when you're in Christ when we see that term it always talks about our salvation it points to our union with Christ so he gives the command think amongst yourselves that which you also think about Christ and then he goes to Christ our example and as I've worked through this uh, these couple of verses at times it's brought me to tears as I've considered afresh the power of Christ's example. I'm just going to share my heart this morning on some of the stuff in these couple of verses. Because once we've considered verses 6, 7, and 8, we're going to share communion together as the ultimate example in our thinking of Christ's example. You see, verse 6 tells us that uh, Christ refuses to act selfishly. Christ refuses to act selfishly. Even though he enjoyed the status as the second person of the Trinity, even though he enjoyed the status of being in heaven, experiencing glories we cannot even consider, but glories that one day will be ours, he acts selflessly. The word became flesh. That's extraordinary. That's absolutely extraordinary. And this is the focus of these three verses. And this is central to our faith, folks. No wonder that Paul uses this in the process of calling and exhorting to sanctification, to growth in Christ. No wonder he says, look at the cross. Because it's central to our faith. And so often these three verses have been misconstrued and heresy has come out of them. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Because these verses draw us to the fact that Christ, when he walked on this earth, was fully God and fully man. A mystery in our minds that sometimes we cannot conceive. I know I cannot conceive it. But I believe it. This is central to our faith. You see, any heresy that has occurred in the last 2,000 years occurs around the person of Christ. Okay? Because there's only six basic heresies, if you really want to come down to, it, around the person of Christ. You deny the genuineness of his deity. You deny the genuineness of his humanity. Or, You deny the completeness of his deity or you deny the completeness of his humanity. There's four of the heresies. All these things were wrestled out in the first three or four hundred years of church history and they still go on today. The final two is you divide his person or confuse his nature. That's how heresy starts. If you say... Christ was a created being. You were denying the genuineness of his deity. No. Didn't you read John 1 with me? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. I can give you lots more examples, but I won't because that's not the focus today. But I just want to say, Your understanding of the incarnation, your understanding of who Christ is, being fully God and fully man, is central to our faith. It is central. And Paul gets it. And he gets it by writing a hymn. Some say this hymn was given to him by others. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. All right? But it's a hymn. And uh, let's look at verse 7. Verse 6 we've covered off. We're saying that this is just an incredible act, a voluntary act by Christ who, who is God, who's in the form of God, but now takes on the form of humanity. And we get this in verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, a lot of confusion has been uh, put out there about this particular verse. What does it mean for Christ to make himself nothing? Some versions say, emptied himself. Does that counter to his full divinity and his full deity? Well, I think the context of the verse helps, Right? Everything in context is important. What does the context of the verse tell us? The main verb is make himself nothing. Himself nothing is the main verb and the, the, the participle verbs are being in the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So those things modify what it means to empty himself or make himself nothing. It's a contrast statement. It's a contrast that... Uh, Christ has given those things that are uh, his privilege and taking on the form of a servant and being born as a man. He divested himself of his prestige or privileges, would be a good way of putting it. He did not divest himself of his essence. I want to say that again because it's really important. Because this is where a lot of confusion occurs. By Jesus becoming a man, he divests himself of prestige or privileges for that period when he's on earth during the incarnation. Not of his essence. I.e. of him being God. This is a critical Important thing in our faith because it has ramifications right through what we believe. Millard Erickson, in his um, book on uh, systematic theology, says this the incarnation was more an addition of human attributes than a loss of divine attributes. I like that. See, this passage tells us at no point does this say that Christ ceased to possess his divine nature. Is that what that's telling us? No, if you think that, you're reading something into the text. It's just not there. And we see that this making himself nothing means that he became man. He did not cease to be in nature or in essence what the father was. He became functionally subordinated to the father for the period of the incarnation, for the time he was on earth. And Jesus did this to reveal God and to provide redemption. By taking on a human nature, he accepted certain limitations, right? He he accepted certain limitations upon the functioning of his divine attributes. This is not a loss of the divine attributes, but an addition of the human attributes. See, the fusing of these two natures And this is a mystery, right? It's a wonderful mystery. Meant that Jesus' actions would always be those of divine humanity. The God man. Let me try and give you an example. Human examples are hopeless normally, right? To try and understand this, but I want to give you one. Just to think through. Okay, think about Hussein Bolt. Who's Hussein Bolt? Fast man, right? Fastest man that's ever lived fast sprinter so he's the fastest sprinter in the world but he decides to run his next race as a three legged race okay, so he ties the second fastest man to his leg and they sprint the race together a question for you has his physical capacity diminished? no he's still the fastest man in the world right? He just happens to have some other bloke who's not quite so quick next to him. But his conditions have changed. So he's now running this three-legged race with somebody next to him with a rubber band on his leg. You know, so the conditions on which he wants to run this race, he has chosen to limit those conditions by being strapped to this other fellow. Similar to a boxer. Who's a famous boxer? Rocky Marciano or Muhammad Ali. What if they went into the ring and they tied one of their arms behind their back? Yeah, it wouldn't last long, would they? <laughs> no. Um, their essence and their ability hasn't changed but what they have is they've imposed some conditions upon themselves which doesn't enable them to function fully I think this is a situation with the incarnate Christ just as a boxer or a runner could choose to get rid of the encumbrance throughout the event so you know Hussein Bowl or the boxer could say okay well I'm done with this um they chose not to, they chose to restrict themselves throughout the duration of the event so it is with Christ his incarnation was a voluntary self-chosen limitation a voluntary self-chosen limitation he did not have to take on humanity but chose to for the period of his time on earth and during this time get this His deity always functioned with his humanity. Another really thing to look at in this whole area, which we haven't got time to do, so we won't, is the fact that um, sometimes in our human thinking, we, uh, we think of this humanity of Christ from our perspective about man taking on deity which is the wrong perspective right the perspective is God who is unlimited and therefore is able and willing to condescend to come to earth in a lesser state of humanity is perfectly sensible however the other way around is not God did not elevate a human to divinity. Rather, he condescended to take on humanity. And that's important. Verse 8 tells us he humbled himself. That's the next verse, verb. He humbled himself by taking on the human form, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. That is the purpose of Christ's incarnation, the cross. And this is the gospel call. The cross is the only thing that can save you. The cross is the only thing that restores relationship. So what about you? Do you understand that relationship? If you don't, come and chat to us. But for us who do have that relationship, why is Jesus becoming a man so important for our growth in our faith? And in what way does this truth, Jesus becoming a man, unify us? Well, it unifies us around the table. These symbols represent the finished work of Christ on your behalf. This bread and wine represents the perfect deity and humanity of Christ for our salvation let us for a moment as we take these symbols together consider the mystery and wonder of the incarnation as we share communion together let us consider the work of Christ the son of man, the son of God all that Christ did for us in our salvation consider that today because all he did, he did according to both natures. He did according to his deity and to his humanity. As God, he had the strength to suffer and make atonement for us. As man, he lived an obedient and sinless life, and in our human nature and in his human nature offered himself voluntarily up to the Father as a pure and sufficient offering for sin. His obedience was both active and passive. His perfect fulfillment of God's law on our behalf and his suffering, the penalty of the broken law in our place, secured our deliverance from the wrath of God, ultimately resulting in our entrance into eternal life when we put our faith and trust in him. His whole undivided person brought about our salvation both as man and as God. It's a famous hymn written by Charles Wesley many years ago which reflects this. i read some of the verses. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me, he caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. His righteousness is clothed over us. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God should die for me? If I could have the stewards please hand out the bread and the wine. reflect on these things take the bread and eat it and we'll hold the cup together to drink before we uh, drink the cup together I'll read another verse from Wesley's hymn he left his father's throne above so free so infinite his grace humbled himself so great his love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love. How can it be? That Thou, my God, should die for me. Strength together. Let's return to our our text as we conclude, because Paul doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't just only give. A call to think. He does not only show an example to follow, he pours out in praise and exaltation of Christ. And these are the verses Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. I can't think of a more appropriate (laughs) sentence when it comes to exalting Christ. God himself has raised Christ to a point that is far above anything we can consider. He has highly exalted him. It's the only time the verb is used in the New Testament. And I don't think we really understand what it means. But it means to lift someone to the highest position. Do you do that in your everyday life, folks? When you consider Christ, when you have the mind of Christ, are you exalting Christ to the highest position? Or are the worries of the world, the, the issues you are facing... Murring the vision of Christ. See, part of our growth in Christ is to focus on Christ. Part of our growth in Christ is to see Him in His glory. And this is where Paul returns. Not only does God exalt Him high above everything, He also bestows upon Him or grants Him gracious favor. And the gracious favor relates to his name. So the gracious favor that's bestowed upon Christ is that his name is above every name. Do we believe that that Christ's name is above every name? That's part of the renewing of our mind, as part of the transforming of our heart that Christ is all and all. for the suffering community that Paul was talking to. He repeatedly reminds them of the centrality of Christ in everything both present and in the future. Because notice here he talks about the future. He says, this name of Christ is not just something to be exalted here in the now. It's something that's going to be exalted for all eternity. Because every knee will bow Whether believer or unbeliever, right? Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess, whether believer or unbeliever, that who? Jesus Christ is Lord. Take encouragement from that today. Take encouragement as you walk out into the world this week. That Christ's name is exalted above all the heavens, above all the earth, above whatever's under the earth, his name is preeminent. Fix your mind on that. Think about that. Because that will provide great encouragement. It will provide great encouragement. I just want to read because in the middle of this verse here is a quote from Isaiah chapter 45, believe it or not. And Paul uses Isaiah 45 to substantiate his case about the name of Christ being exalted. I'm just going to spot read some of these verses from verse 18 through to verse 23. For thus said the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and he did not create it empty, but he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Verse 22. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's the stuff, that's the sentence that Paul grabs to exalt Christ. So it's not difficult to the dots, is it? The name of Christ is the name of God. It's the name of Yahweh. He is the one who saves. And every tongue, whether believer or unbeliever, whether willfully or unwillfully, will what? Proclaim his name. See, when we consider the sacrificial work of Christ, when we think about the very essence of his nature, when we ponder the finished work of the cross as followers of Christ, our hearts are drawn to our Savior in exultation and praise. Just like Paul has here in these verses. This has always been the experience of worshippers throughout the centuries. He is exalted above all heavenly hosts, above all nations, above all peoples both in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Paul's heart here is to say, as he's talking through the sanctification process, is that the cross of Christ is what unifies us as believers. The example of Christ becoming the God-man, the example of him humbling himself in obedience to the point of death is the true heart of what unifies us. When we consider that stuff, selfishness, rivalry, conceit just vanishes. We are to think and consider Christ's example, his hardness, compassion for this lost, his care and kind heartedness for his sheep. We need to also consider his warnings and his exhortations to those who doubt his deity, to those who doubted that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. To have the mind of Christ, you're going to have a burden for others. That's a given. You're going to prepare, if you're a parent, to engage your children in, in a world where their mind needs to be filled with the example of Christ and with his word. At a heart aflamed with the love for Jesus and a, a courage implanted by the Spirit of God. So in conclusion, this is my, I guess, exhortation, which I get from these verses. Is the gospel central in your life? Is the incarnation of Christ and the results of that incarnation central in your thinking? As followers of Christ, we're commanded that it should be. We can do it through the power of the Spirit. Through the power of the indwelling Spirit, he can continue to transform and renew our minds for the glory of God. Folks, let's have the mind of Christ. Thanks, Bishop do.